you're listening to this, it means you've made the right choice. This is where all the secrets of the universe are revealed. And if you're lucky, the recipe to my award-winning banana bread. I'm Jeff Wallenitz, and this is OK Summer. This week's guest is Jeff Perlman, sports writer, podcaster, and author of eight books. His newest book, Three Ring Circus, Kobe, Shaq, Phil, and the Crazy Years of the Lakers Dynasty is available now at your favorite bookstore or online destination. Jeff was kind enough to sit down and chat with me about how he made it as a sports writer, why there's still a rush to see your name in old school print, and what it means to live in the moment. Please enjoy our conversation. Hi, everyone. Welcome to OK So. My name is Jeff Wallenitz. I'm your guide through our 16th episode of OK So, which is exciting. We're, uh, we're past a dozen, but not quite two. Um, today, uh, we've got a really exciting guest. Uh, Jeff Perlman is here to talk about his new book coming out next week. Jeff, welcome. Uh, thank you. If you hear the sirens in the background, it's because something is burning down because we're in California. So there's always something burning in California. That's right. How far are you? Are you insulated from, or is there a fire near you? No. We, I mean, we had, we've had bad air quality and we definitely had a few days of ash on our car, ash flex, but we uh, did not see the fire or smell, really smell the fire. Yeah. We had, um, here in Tarzana, we had a, probably a week where I don't think we saw the sun um, through the smoke cover. It was pretty, pretty ugly. No ash, actually, but um, pretty ugly. Sun is overrated. Not, nothing to see there. Yeah, that whole thing is is kind of crazy. Source of life, my ass, you know. So thanks for thanks for coming on. I I appreciate it. We've you know we've met a few times. We have the Jazarians in common. Um, yeah. You know, I've seen you speak a few times um, through a reading, and I've got a story about that. I'll tell a little bit later. But it's funny. I I you're like a few years older than me, not much older than me, but we had very similar upbringings, kind of Hudson River Valley, New York upbringings. Tell me a little bit about what your life was like growing up there in Mayapak. Um, I mean, it was pretty idyllic in a lot of ways. I, uh, I grew up on Emerald Lane in Mayapak, New York. I had my best friend live next door or my other best friend lived two houses up. There was a lot of, you know, in the winter, everyone would run out in the street and sled. We played night tag. There's kids all over the place. It was a time when, you know, I hate to sound super old, but like, it wasn't like your parents were like, where are you? Where are you? It was, we would, mom, we're going to ride our bikes to town. Okay. And maybe you'd come back six hours later and that'd be it. And it was, uh, nobody in my family cared about sports at all. I mean, nobody. So I had the sports section to the New York times all to myself and the local newspaper. And I would, it was the only section we were allowed to, I would, anyone was allowed to take into the bathroom was the sports section because my mom wouldn't read it. So she didn't care. I'd be in the bathroom reading the New York Times sports section folded over. I don't know. I just, it was really easy. It was a really easy upbringing. No, I was just to say, that's wild. So no one in your family had any attachment to sports whatsoever. First of all, that newspaper rule is 100% the rule in my house. If it goes in the bathroom, the only place it comes out of the bathroom is into the trash. Exactly. But that's really, so what got you, what got you hooked into sports? I honestly have no idea. I, uh, I do not know. I, uh, I remember being a kid and really liking the colors and the flash and the pizzazz. I have a really early memory of a teacher asking everyone who their favorite football team was. And I said the Tampa Bay Buccaneers because I just thought the colors were cool. <laughs> um, I used to, I mean, one thing that, that I don't know if this made me, I don't, I really don't know. But one of the things is I used to go to the mail pack library all the time and 
they used to have, my family would only get me sport magazine because it was, it was monthly and it was cheaper. So I wouldn't get sports illustrated. So I'd go to the library and read them in those plastic bindings, the old sports illustrated. And they would start, they took out so many sports books over the years. Whenever they'd have a new one come in, a librarian would call me and say, Jeff, just so you know, we just got Bo Jackson's biography in. We're going to hold it for you. If you come down here quick, you can get it first. And I would run the mile and a half to the library, get the light, get the book, run home. So, so it really was an obsession. Yeah. I don't know what happened. Somewhere along the line, I was always reading sports books, always reading sports books, always reading sports magazines. I had the typical 80s, uh, you know, posters in my room of Ricky Henderson and Bo Jackson and Walter Payton and Earl Campbell and all that stuff. And I just, I also, one thing I do know, I was always like, uh, I grew up in a really white conservative area and I was always kind of intrigued by Afros by cool Dominican names, by lamb chop sideburns, you know, uh, by cool African-American names, you know, like Malik. And I don't know, like I just, it sounds corny, but I freaking love that stuff. I was drawn to that stuff. And sports was really a sort of an opening for that. Well, it was so unlike anything, anything that was in our kind of immediate areas, depending on where you were. I remember when Herschel Walker won the Heisman Trophy um, in 82, I wasn't, I wasn't really that old. I was six or seven years old, yeah. but I was obsessed with his hair, his jerry curl. Oh, so funny. Um, um, and it's just one of those things that sticks out the same way. Jerry curls were amazing. Sideburns were amazing. I remember there was a shortstop for the Royals named UL Washington. And you saw, he used to play with a toothpick in his mouth. I thought that was the coolest, that was the coolest freaking thing ever. Like the Cardinals had a pitcher named Joaquin Andujar. I just wanted my name to be Joaquin Andujar. In fact, when I was in Spanish class, the teacher one year let us pick our own names. And my name was Joaquin after Joaquin Andujar. And so it's it's all of those little memories that are so and we were super fortunate growing up in the New York area because in the Times, which my parents also subscribed to, we had Dave Anderson and we had Harvey Aratton and we had those guys. Yeah. But even our local paper, the journal news, had Rick Carpaniello and Ian O'Connor and all these other guys that have grown into I mean, in some respects, Rick is still doing the Rangers beat, which is yeah. wild yeah. 40 plus years later. But, you know, Connor, you know, writes about the Jets and the Yankees on ESPN. Yeah. No, I agree. And I um, I actually got my first real journalism start. I mean, I started writing for my high school, the Mailpack High School Chieftain. But I was lucky uh, um, after my senior year of high school, the local weekly newspaper, the Patent Trader, and there was the Patent Trader and the Putnam Trader, they had a sports editor named Joe Lombardi. And I wrote him letters and I said, here are my clips from the Chieftain. Any chance you'd let me write articles? And he said, yes. And I started writing, I would do lacrosse games and summer sports. And I would pitch every friend I had who did a sport to do a story on these guys. So I, I did a lot of slightly unethical profiles of kids. I was <laughs> And Joe, Joe would pay me. It's so funny. You couldn't say it now. He would pay me and I'm Jewish. So I can say he would take, pay me in Jew food. That's what we used to joke. He would, take oh, me to the, yeah. he would take me to the Mount Kisco deli and we'd get like, that was my payment. I would get Mount Kisco deli food and it was awesome. And I would run to Rodax Deli to get the paper when it came out, I think on Tuesdays and see my name and my byline. It was as magical a journalistic experience as I probably ever had. It must have been such incredible experience to be able to apprentice in that kind of friendly atmosphere uh, with an editor. Did you learn a lot from that experience? From I mean, Was that sort of what said, all right, look, I love sports and I love writing and here I am. This is what I'm going to do. I mean... I think there were a couple of things. Like when I was a when I was a high school newspaper writer, I was just a sports editor of my stupid high school newspaper. But I did a story about the mail pack. 
I did a story called cheerleading, sport or activity. <laughs> I dogged on cheerleading, right? And I know I wrote that thing just to get attention, but I did it and it got attention. And I remember all the cheerleaders being pissed off at me and how awesome that was. Like these cheerleaders who I was invisible to them are surrounding me, really mad at me. That's amazing. And then I remember being writing for the trader and seeing your name in print. And it's such a, it's sad that people don't get that today. It's like seeing your name online, it just isn't the same magic as seeing your name in print, running to a store, picking up an object, paying a quarter or 50 cents or whatever, seeing your name there. It was, it's not the reason I do it now, but it definitely was a freaking, you know, magical spell for me. It's a small rush. And, you know, when I first, when we first started Yankee Pot Roast and we were trying to, to get ourselves off the ground there, I mean, it was even a thrill to be able to publish that as a publisher. But that led into a couple of really interesting things. Like we got to write the Maxim summer movie preview one year. Um, and I got it, like I got that framed because to see my name in print in a magazine that I, I don't want to say I, I necessarily, you know, was a subscriber, but that I read frequently um, was really cool. Of course. I remember when I was young at Sports Illustrated, I'd just gotten there. I had no um, no chops, nothing major. And one time they let me, someone was doing the baseball preview issue and they wrote a story about, I think it was the Montreal Expos. And I inserted, they needed me to add a paragraph and I added the paragraph. And I think the paragraph made it into the magazine. Didn't have my name on it. The story wasn't by me. It was a paragraph. I cut that thing out, put it in my scrapbook. It was one of my like biggest. And one time when I was really young at the magazine, the editor was a guy named Bill Colson. To me, he was larger than life. And he called me into the into his sort of office one day. And he said, We're struggling with a, a headline for the for the cover. You have any thoughts? And it was uh, it was Steve Walsh getting sacked, Steve Young getting sacked. And I said, I don't know, Niner Nightmare? And he's like, perfect. Oh wow. The issue came out that week and it was Niner Nightmare. That is what a thrill. My God. So how did you, so you wound up at the University of Delaware. How did you get from Delaware to SI? I know you wrote throughout college for the paper. I did. And when I was a junior at Delaware, after my junior, I interned at the Nashville Tennessean as a summer intern. And when I was done with college, they hired me as a, uh, as a uh, features writer. I was actually hired as a food and fashion writer at the Tennessean. Doesn't exactly track, but okay. Yeah, no, no, not at all. I had no knowledge either, but it was the only opening they had. And the editor kind of liked my writing. And she said, she told me, she said, we were just, she used to always tell me, we're just a boring feature section and you have some spunk to you. And that's why I brought you in. And I showed up and I made every mistake you could make. I was insufferably cocky. I thought what I did mattered far more than it does, if it even does. I wouldn't take advice from anyone. Um, I actually talked trash to my rival food writer, who her name was Nikki Pendleton. She wrote for the National Banner. She was 10 million times better than I was. But I had this little like, I don't know what it was. I'm six foot two, but I had very little man's complex. Was arrogant and insufferable and mistake prone. And basically what happened is I got reassigned to the cops beat. And I was on the police beat. And my editor put me there and she said, just freaking worry about the facts. Stop trying to be all pizzazzy. Just learn to report. She put me on that beat. It was a huge eye-opener. It was the first time in my career that I had been just smacked down the size. It was kind of a realization, you're not as great as you think you are, and we're all replaceable. And after doing that, I was switched over to sports, which I always wanted to do. And I was given the high school wrestling beat. And I worked my ass off on that beat. I mean, I freaking love covering high school. I don't even like wrestling, but I love covering high school wrestling. And I worked hard. And, and my dream, when I was in uh, junior high, I told my mom I would write for Sports Illustrated one day. I was like, I'm going to write for Sports Illustrated. She was like, you got to be realistic, you know, lawyer, doctor. I'm like, no, I'm telling you, mom. So I started applying to SI and I wrote a letter and I designed it to look 
like the inside of Sports Illustrated. The letter actually looked like a letter from the editor that used to run in the magazine. And I, I wrote it and it said like, when we first got a letter from Jeff Perlman back in 1996, <laughs> he had no idea who he was, blah, blah, blah. And I had a picture and I had the mask, I had the whole thing. And I sent it and the letter caught their eye and they asked if I could pitch some story ideas. And I pitched some very boring story ideas. But when I was in college at Delaware, my junior year, I applied early for the NBA draft just to see what would happen. <laughs> it wasn't even my idea, was another editor's idea. And I got a letter back one day in my dorm room uh, from the NBA and saying, as of this letter, blah, blah, blah. And then I was home for a break and I got a call from the NBA, head of security, saying, who the hell are you? And I'm like, no, my name is Jeff Perlman. You know, I play at Delaware, which I did because I played for Edna Zettables of the Intramural League. Right. They were like, ah, blah, blah. So I told Sports Illustrated, that was the story I pitched. I once applied for early entry into the NBA draft. That became my first SI byline. And I was hired as a, uh, as a uh, basically a fact checker reporter about six months later. That's amazing. And so here you are now, 24 years old. You told your mom you're going to work for SI. And here you are walking in the doors of SI. And I guess at the time, life building at that time, right? You know, up to yeah. the 25th floor or whatever they were on. Yeah, it was awesome. It was amazing. It was amazing. And it was a really competitive environment. We were all thrown into a place called the bullpen, which is where basically fact checkers, it's, where you, it's a starting position. And I get there in 1996. It's just among the people there. It was John Wertheim, who's obviously had a huge career. It was Grant Wall, who's had a huge career. It's Paul Gutierrez, who covers the Raiders for uh, ESPN, huge career. It was Matt Rudy, who has written a gazillion books, huge career. It was like Lars Anderson, who was at the Bleacher Report for a long time, has written a ton of books. It was a ton of young, really hungry, really competitive assholes all fighting and thinking they're better than they are and that they deserve this shot. And it was a, in New York City, it could be, I, Wertheim and I have actually talked about writing it into some kind of TV pitch. It really could be. It was oh, like that's a great movie. idea. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and it was, a, it was a magical, yet frustrating, yet scary, yet rewarding time in my life. The, yeah, I mean, look, Wertheim, I'm a, a pretty big tennis fan. Wertheim was, you couldn't not read him. Um, right. And I'm not that big a soccer fan, but Grant Wall is, these can't miss reading, right? Yeah. Um, those are guys that had the bylines in the magazine, which is, is just, is, is unbelievable. And then you have the real heavy hitters that were writing for SI, right? Like the Peter Kings and the Dr. Z's and guys like that, who obviously didn't sit in the bullpen with you guys fighting it out for stories, but had these recurring columns that just had all kinds of um, import, right? You just, you couldn't, you couldn't miss those things either. Did you get, as far as exposure sitting in the bullpen and stuff, what, what exposure did you get to guys who were columnists like Rick Riley and so forth? You, it's funny. You wouldn't, you wouldn't get a ton because you would on the phone. Like your job was really fact checker. So, and it was, if you got something, if there, it's funny, if there was something wrong in a Rick Riley story, just as an example, or Gary Smith story, Rick Riley and Gary Smith faced no repercussions whatsoever. And when I became a senior writer, I faced no repercussions whatsoever. It all fell on the fact checker. Oh, oh wow. So, you would get a story. So they'd be like, all right, you're checking Riley's master's story this week or whatever. And you would go through it with a pen. You would cross out every word. It'd be printed out. You'd cross out every word. You'd circle every fact. So if the name Tiger Woods is in that story, you better freaking check and make sure it's spelled correct. And so you would get these guys on the phone. And then I started getting a couple of assignments. I get assignments here and there. I pitched a ton. Um, one thing that happened at the time, the scorecard section of the magazine, those guys were in the building. And two of the guys who ran scorecard around that time were uh, Jack McCallum, who was a great NBA writer, but was kind of taking himself away from the NBA 
this guy, Rich O'Brien, and they were in the office all the time. So I would pitch as many things as I could to them at scorecard essays and little blur. I was, this is more than you need to know and probably want to know, but like, I was so hungry. Like I was so hungry. I would come in on my off days or get a directory of every, it was called the COSA directory, COSA directory of every sports information department in the country alphabetically. And I would go one by one alphabetically and call the schools, say, my name is Jeff Perlman. I'm a young reporter at Sports Illustrated. Do you have any stories that I should be pitching to the magazine? And then I'd show up with like this bounty of ideas and stories. And that really got me going because I kept pitching ideas and they were like, wow, this guy has a lot of ideas. Yeah. Well, it's really, really instructive for anybody who wants to, right? I mean, now it would be more like just publish your blog every single day, right? Or publish your website every single day with something um, and send those links out, go through social. But the idea of looking through a guide and actually walking down and picking out and calling each one of them alphabetically, like that's the kind of legwork you had to do back in the day because all the other stuff didn't exist. I would actually argue you still do. I um, I don't think, I think the people who really make it nowadays, they create themselves into these multi-platform entities who can do everything. And I think if you just have a really good blog or you just have a nice podcast or whatever, and you're coming up, it's not enough. And also, I think research jumps off the page now more than ever. I really do because so few people do research and so much stuff is just, it's in my head, okay, it's on Twitter, that if you actually dig deep, take some time, dig through the archives of newspapers.com or Nexus or whatever, you make yourself stand out more than ever. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I actually wanted to bring up something. I wanted to bring up Twitter for a second. Um, and we can talk about how prolific you are on Twitter a bit later. But recently on Twitter, you posted some really cool memorabilia you had from the time you were at SI, these typewritten oh, letters yeah. um, from an editor talking about how much he enjoyed a specific piece of your story. Like as a young writer, how uplifting was it to get something like that from someone you were working probably so hard to oppress actively? Man, it was, the whole experience was terrifying because- all right, like just as an example, I'll answer the question, but like I wrote a story, I was sent to San Francisco to profile Barry Bonds. I was the first reporter at Sports Illustrated he spoke to in years. I had a friend of a friend and he hooked me up with an interview. I was so proud of that. I got Barry Bonds, we sat down, we talked, I wrote the story, I handed it in. I'm in a taxi, my phone rings, it's an editor. He goes, Perlman, if we wanted to give Bonds a blowjob, we would have brought him to New York. <laughs> it was scary. It was scary. So even those letters, you were hoping they were going to be good because sometimes they'd be, you would hear bad, you know? And like, but those are, Peter Carey was this large, the guy who wrote him was this larger than life figure. He used to wear a bow tie. You just thought these people were gods, you know? And you thought the writers were gods. And then the funny thing is, as you get older, so I'm 48, so I'm the age a lot of those guys were at the time. And you wonder, do people look at me that way? Like, do people think of me that way? Are there young writers who are intimidated by me? Because, and you realize like, those guys were no more, you know, like, you look at people a certain way, but they're just people going about their lives and they're not anymore. The awe I was showing them, it was deserved because their careers were really impressive, but they have the same problems we all have. It's just funny how youth gives you this perspective, you know? It's a responsibility, right? As a, I mean, we'll call each other elders at this point in, right. in whatever it is that we do respectively, but it's a responsibility. So now you're 26 years old, 27 mm -hmm. years old, you're at SI, you know, you've been grinding it out in the bullpen and they drop an assignment on you to go have a conversation with John Rocker. Yeah. So first of all, it was, um, I was actually, a, I think I was a writer. I think I was a staff writer, right? I was a staff writer. Yeah. Yeah. I'd moved up a little bit and I was basically, uh, I would get the scraps, you know, like Verducci would get the great stuff. 
And then if they had a really big baseball story, they would bring in another writer. Like they'd bring in Mike Bamberger, maybe Riley or someone. And I would get the real scraps, like the dog crap, which is fair because I was young and coming up. And they, you know, why don't you do Jeff? Why don't you do a profile of this pitcher for the Braves? It's kind of crazy. John Rocker. <laughs> Go out to Shea Stadium and blah, blah, blah. And it's during the playoffs. And I know exactly what I'm going to write beforehand. I mean, I know exactly what the story is. It's going to be this guy who's misunderstood. And the real John Rocker, blah, 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 blah. So I go out and I get 20 minutes with him here, probably before a game. And I call his parents and I talk to teammates and I write this vanilla story, John Rocker, misunderstood guy. And it ends with him cradling his dog when he was a boy and his dog is dying and John Rocker's crying. It was pathetic. Right. But the story never runs because the Braves got swept in the World Series and it just happened so quick. So I was sent back down to freshen up the story. You know, I spent eight hours, whatever. I don't know what it was, six hours, five hours, seven hours with this crazed, lunatic, racist, homophobe, <laughs> xenophobe who could throw 96 miles an hour. You know, it was one of the weirdest experiences of my life. But it very quick, I mean, it very quickly became about everything but throwing a baseball sure. quickly because it was so off the reservation, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah, it was insane. And you're sitting there. It's just, I'd never had, I don't even know if I've had an experience since like that where you're sitting talking to a guy. I definitely have it. And he's just you're opposed to everything this guy is saying. You think this guy is a complete anus of a human being. He's disgusting, disturbing, and gross. You're you're literally a liberal Jewish guy from New York. And this guy is telling you how he doesn't like foreigners, gays, or blacks. Like, it's crazy. And um, your job is to say nothing. Like, your job is just to ask questions and to listen. And that, it's probably one of the great achievements of my young career is not the story itself, but that somehow he felt comfortable enough with the tape recorder rolling, with a notepad out, to tell me those things. Did that raise your profile at SI immediately? Like once that hit the pages, were they like, shit, we got we to gotta make this guy a senior staff writer or we got to give him better stories because he just wrote a, like, a gangbusters story? No, I wouldn't say so at all, actually. I would, um, you know, I think, uh, I'm to think how we're, I don't, I think what they were impressed by or that they felt good about was that I, um, I handled it well. You know, like I handled it well. And, um. I wasn't, I wasn't uh, cowered by it. You know, when they wanted me to go back and deal with Rocker, I went back and dealt with Rocker. I think I just handled it maturely. And I think that's, but it, but it wasn't like, then I had this rocket ship career where like everything went right. And I was a superstar. I mean, I've never been a superstar, but it, it wasn't like, it wasn't, it wasn't what people think. Like when people say that Rocker story made your career, or that Rocker story put you on the map, you can certainly make the argument it helped my career. There's no doubt about it. I'm not sure. It, I'm not sure it did quite what people think. And that's fair. I mean, probably especially at a magazine like SI, which has had a pretty rigorous social order, right? There were dues you had to pay and years you had to put in in order to ascend through that hierarchy. Well, one thing I, one thing I disagree with you on there is it, it was a weird place. You could skyrocket really quick. You could linger forever. You could be you could rub some editors the wrong way and never escape. It was really strange. When I got there, it was known as the Ivy League pipeline. Like you had a much better shot. If you went to an Ivy League, I did not go to an Ivy League. It just depended. I mean, my career, I got there. So I got there when I was 24 and I was covering baseball by the time I was 26 or 27. So I can't say I had a particularly rough. Now I had a newspaper background that helped. I wasn't just straight out of college, but Grant was. Grant had a hugely fast rise and he was just a kid. He had an internship at the Miami Herald and then he's at Sports Illustrated kicking ass. So it just depended. It really was, it was a very fickle thing. It was always hard to figure out. And then, uh, were you, so you wrote your, your first book, you wrote Bad Guys One. Were you a, were you a Mets fan growing up? Was that 86 team 
an obsession of yours? Oh, um, uh, I would say so. I was the thing that was big was I grew up in a street. I mentioned Mayo Pack, New York, and I grew up in Emerald Lane. And two houses up from me was a guy named Vinny Gargano. Oh yeah, <laughs> Mr. Mr. Gargano. Did you know Mr. Gargano? The, I th- feel like he worked at my. Maybe not. I feel like there was a guy named Vinny Gargano who worked at my high school. No, it wasn't him. This guy okay. worked at high school, but he was my neighbor. And he was everything my dad, my dad was a great dad. So I'm not saying my dad wasn't a good dad, but this Mr. Gargano was everything my dad wasn't, which is to say he was a diehard sports fan. And I would go, his son, Dennis was a good friend of mine. And I would go up to, uh, to the Gargano's house and Mr. Gargano would be sitting on his couch, drinking Coke, smoking Viceroy's and watching the Mets. And I would be enamored. He was kind of a hero, Mr. Gargano. And he'd tell me about this Gooden kid, or let me tell you about Seaver, you know, the catching, blah, blah, blah. And he really gave me that love in a lot of ways of sort of the intricacies of baseball a little bit, watching and seeing things and perspective behind it. And I, so that 86 team meant a lot to me, actually. And it seems like that's a pattern in the topics you pick to write your books more or less, right? Barry Bonds is probably a notable exception to that. Actually, it's funny, you were both Jewish. Yeah. And um, Barry Bonds, not a Jew. Not a Jew. But guess who is? Hall of Famer Rod Carew. <laughs> he converted. Actually, not true. Not even true. But yeah, go ahead. <laughs> so you did a sports book reading series in New York when that book came out yeah. 15, 16, 17 years ago. And um, so you signed my copy and it just says, to Jeff, trust Jesus, Jeff Perlman, which is, that's <laughs> one of my, one of my prized possessions. Um, but, uh, you know, with sort of with the notable exception of Barry Bonds, who's a kind of a loathsome guy, very generally speaking. Not the best. Um, you seem to pick topics to write about that you're enamored of. And so what's your process for going, all right, it's time for me to write my next book. Uh, what should I write about? Uh, interesting. I, um, I definitely look for characters and I look for big characters you know, I always say, and I really mean it, like people will be like, oh, you always write about controversial figures. I say two things. Number one, Walter Payton wasn't controversial. Brett Favre wasn't controversial. The USFL wasn't controversial. You know, Roger Clemens wasn't, I mean, he was steroids, but he wasn't super controversial. If someone wants to pay me to write about Jack Trudeau and the Indianapolis Colts, and you really want that book, I'm happy to write that book. But I don't see people wanting to read those books. So I like writing about large figures, figure um, teams that haven't been written about a ton, a ton. I know there've been Shaq books and Kobe books and Laker books. I feel like 96 to 04 is a little bit of an overlooked period. I don't know. So that's kind of where I go with it. It must be. And I want to talk, I'm going to, I'll tie the USFL into Trump and Twitter in a couple of minutes, but I want to, I want to talk about the book that's coming out. It's, I think it's Tuesday. This Tuesday. Is your, is your, well, it'll be a week ago, Tuesday when this comes out. But oh, yes. Right. So it's, <laughs> I want to make sure I'm, I'm respecting timelines here, but yeah. um it's, it'll come out September 22nd, let's say it that way. Yep. And um, tell me a little bit about, well, there's two things I'm interested in. Let's start here. What has it been like promoting a book that's largely about Kobe Bryant so shortly after his early passing? Uh, it's super weird and uncomfortable. That's the, uh, the honest answer. It, um, I mean, I live out here. You know, I see the love and what it meant. And I think, I don't even think I realized how big of an iconic figure he was, as weird as that sounds, uh, until he died. I know he was a superstar. I knew he was beloved out here, but it was crazy and overwhelming. And I'd finished the book before he died. And now, and the book chronicles a really uncomfortable period in a lot of ways. You know, he was, could be a pain in the ass and he could be a punk and he could be, you know, difficult and ornery and arrogant. And he also could be wonderful. And his work ethic is one of the all time great work ethics. And so it's uncomfortable and I'm, I'm a little nervous about it. I mean, I don't really know what to expect fully. 
I just, I'll keep defending myself and explaining. And I always say like, if there are people who don't want to read the book, I think it's crap that there's a book coming out that portrays Kobe in such a light, you know, it goes over the Eagle Colorado situation very thoroughly. If people are not ready for that, you shouldn't buy the book or skip the chapter. And if you don't think that's right, I understand what you're saying. I actually do. I read Joe Posnanski's paternal book, which came out right after all of those revelations. Yes. Um, I can't remember the exact order of operations. I don't remember if Paterno died right before or right after, but it all kind of came down right around then. And that book largely, I mean, I think entirely leaves that episode out, um, yeah. even if it wasn't completely in the light. But I, it seems like your belief, and I, I think this is the right belief, is that it's the responsibility of a journalist or an investigative journalist or somebody who's digging into the background to provide the entirety of the story and let the reader decide. You know, it's funny. When when Joe wrote that book, I was really critical of him and vocally critical of him. I regret that usually. Like that was a real mistake in my career and stupid because we all approach this differently and there aren't always right answers or wrong answers. And he probably felt he was doing it the right way. And maybe he was doing it the right way for him. And I always, I've always regretted that. I was juvenile of mine and probably, it was probably jealousy seeing a guy have the best-selling book in America or something. And I, I hate that. I really hate that. That is an impulse of myself that I always... I don't have it nearly as much as I used to, but you got to fight to suppress. You know, someone else's success doesn't take away from your own. I personally, this book, nothing to do with his. I couldn't write a, a Kobe book or a book about this period and pretend Eagle never happened. I just couldn't. It just wouldn't make sense. You'd be better off not writing a book at all. I don't believe in sort of, like Kobe wrote the Mamba mentality. I have no problem with him writing that book. That's the perspective he wanted to offer. It's a valid perspective. I just don't believe in doing books like that for myself. I think when you're, you sign up to be a reporter and a journalist, your job is to chronicle the truth. And I do think oftentimes a mistake that is made is people think that telling the truth about someone is ripping someone. It's not the same thing. I had that with the Walter Payton book. How dare you write this about Walter Payton? How dare you write that about Walter Payton? Wasn't he more impressive? Like, isn't it more impressive to know he battled depression at the end of his life, but still wanted people to be happy? Isn't it more impressive that all the struggles he had, he fought through them? Why do these guys only need to be two-dimensional? Why do we need to think Kobe Bryant and Shaquille O'Neal never go to the bathroom or overflow a toilet or throw up or spill a drink? Like, it is okay. You will survive knowing that stuff. And I just always, it really bothers me, this idea that we need to stay loyal to their legacies, that you're somehow damaging a legacy by telling someone, oh, wait, guess what? This guy was actually a human being. Yeah, I think there's a pervasive American characteristic, which is that we we have an inability generally as a society to appreciate the notion of complexity or nuance. The idea that Kobe could both be the person who did the things or allegedly did the things that happened in, in Eagle and also be the person who became this great husband, father, philanthropist, etc. Like those two things can and did coexist. You know... I just want to say, and I don't want to take this in a political place, but I always tend to. I always, whenever I see Donald Trump now, I always think you would be so much more likable to so many more people if every now and then you admitted you made a mistake. And just every so often you said, yeah, that was kind of a bad call on my part, or that was my bad. Or you know what? That I was inexperienced as president. That was really dumb of me. My bad. There's nothing wrong with seeing someone as flawed or admitting you have flaws or apologizing. And I just think people are complicated. You're right. Kobe Bryant, Eagle Colorado, bad situation, not cool at all. Can he still turn around and be a great dad to four kids? 100%. He did. So I just find nuances really interesting. And we're all kind of hypocritical because we all have our nuances, whether we admit it or not. And we all have our blind spots too, our inability to see nuances. Um, the thing about, the thing that always 
Look, I think you're 100% right about Donald Trump. I think what's even more, which he doesn't even have to admit he's flawed to his people. He could have, he could, if you take the notion of wearing a mask, for instance, he could have completely reversed course without admitting he was wrong. And his base would have totally yep. embraced that. It's, I've never seen it. I've never seen where a guy admits he's caught admitting that he underplayed it. And then two days later, he holds a rally indoors and everyone shows up without masks. If you can, of all the things I've seen, that might be the most mystifying to me. Like if you, if, if I find out, if I'm a huge Pearl Jam fan and Pearl Jam's having a concert and I found out two days before the concert that Pearl Jam learned that the, by going to their concert, they're spreading this kind of weird disease and there's a risk you could die from it. I'm probably skipping the Pearl Jam show. It is a bizarre cognitive dissonance that exists in that community of human beings that yes. they are both willing to forego their own personal health in service of the cult of Donald Trump's personality. Yep. Super weird. Don't get it. I've never gotten it. Bothers me in a major way. And so what's what I find very, very interesting about your Twitter, I'm not really on Facebook anymore, but your your Twitter thread and then your sort of Facebook repost. Hey, good move on that. Good move on yeah. that. Bravo. Yeah. It's um, my, my industry, I, I'm in ad tech, my industry tipped me that way uh, you know, more than a few years ago. But you engage very, very, I mean, aggressively is not exactly the right word. But I, when I say aggressively, I mean a lot. <laughs> you engage a lot or very often with Trumpers, people who support the president. What is your, what's your end game there? Is it, is it, I mean, I assume it's a true desire to educate or convince, or at least maybe get one person towards salvation, for lack of a better word. But do you feel like you're on a fool's errand sometimes? What's the, what's the motivation? Man, it's weird. I don't know. I, um, you know, I suffer from health anxiety, where I always think I'm dying of something. And what people who suffer from health anxiety do all the time is they go to Google to look up a disease, right? So let's say you have your foot is numb. You'll go to Google and you think you're going there to put your mind at ease, but you're actually not. You're going there to find what you're dying of. So like you could suffer from some mild thing, but if you see MS on that list or Parkinson's, you're like, that's what I have. That's what I have. You're looking for that. You just don't know it. And I feel like I've engaged much less with Trump people than I used to. I've muted tons of them. I just couldn't deal. But I think I was telling myself that I was trying to have open engagement and try to understand, but probably the truth of the matter was... I was just looking for hostility. And that's a stupid way to freaking spend your time on earth. That's, that's, that is fascinating. Yeah, I mean, I find that when I get on Twitter and I have, for my own mental sanity, limited that engagement over the last couple of weeks. And I'm, I'm looking to keep it minimal until the election because I, I, I honestly just don't know how much more I could take without completely losing my mind. Yeah. But you do, you see... You know, in the same vein that you see people with an inability to appreciate nuance or complexity, you also see a complete lack of intellectual curiosity, which is the other thing that, that just boggles my mind. I don't, I don't see how people could be that intellectually incurious and still walk around every day. But what about, I mean, I have, I've lost, I mean, you know where I'm from. I've lost 60% of my high school classmates on Facebook because I just couldn't deal anymore. And I think these people think that I can't deal because... Um, you know, they have different opinions in mind. It's generally not that. It is that sometimes. It's more they see something that their friends, 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 uncles, friends, daughter, sister posted on Facebook 
top 10 reasons Obama is a Kenyan Muslim or top 10 things Trump has done that the libs don't want you to know. And they post it on their page and I'll DM every now and then because I'm an idiot. And I'll be like, look, man, I just want you to know that that list is so flawed. And here's, if you want a link, here's a link. It would have taken you two seconds to Google this and find out it's not true. And they generally don't take it down. They leave it, you know, and it's just a stupid lib trying to be an asshole. I mean, it's just, it's mind boggling to me. I do, and the other thing that kills me right now is like really kills me. And this comes as a guy from New York, 9-11, the whole thing. We should be bonding over the fact that this is the suckiest year for everyone. You know what I mean? Like I do. This is the worst year. My dog died. Okay. Kobe Bryant died. The Australian fires, the fires out here in California, COVID, forget even if you like Trump or hate Trump. It is the worst year. My father-in-law's girlfriend died. Like every, it's a terrible year. Why can't we bond over that a little bit? So I've tried to be more sort of amicable with conservative friends I have who like Trump. And I'm like, can we just all bond over the fact this sucks? And that usually goes pretty well. That actually goes pretty well because it does suck. Yeah, it sucks a lot. Um, and, you know, I think the root of it is some years ago, um, and we'll move off of Trump after this, but some years ago, uh, right after he got elected, a political writer that I follow on Twitter talked about going home to Indiana and, for the holidays, the winter holidays. And um, it was a lot about, he, he just basically tweeted, he's like, we've, we've even turned the time when we're supposed to turn our brains off into something we have to grit our teeth over because somebody has told us that it's not okay to say happy holidays. It has to be Merry Christmas. Right. Infuriating. And it just, it's, that's one of those things that shocked me. So let's go back to Showtime, which I think is a far more interesting at least more mentally sane thing to talk about. If there were one or two things you wanted people to know about the book, and I, I will point everyone to your Twitter because you are sort of counting down over the days here um, in, in advance of the book, some really, really super interesting things about the book. But if there's one or two things you'd want people to come away with, what are they? I think Kobe's a fascinating, fascinating guy to write about. I really do. I think he's a fascinating figure. I think this period is a really fascinating time. I've talked about this a bunch, but it, it really, it always keeps coming into my head. When I was in a, Back when I worked at Sports Illustrated, the early days, 96, 97, my roommate was a friend of mine from college named Russ Bankston. And when I was at SI, Russ was the editor of Slam Magazine. And this is when Slam was huge. And it was the merging of hip hop and basketball and sort of culture and clothes. And it was just this thing. And they would always do these awesome covers. And it would be like Iverson with his cornrows blown out. Or it would be Stefan Marbury and Kevin Garnett, KG and Showbiz. You know, it would be like cool stuff. And it felt really kind of gritty. Kobe never fit in on those covers. He would be on the cover, but he never felt gritty because he wasn't gritty. He was suburban, but he was trying to be gritty. And he was always like, he was always impersonating other people, whether it was Michael Jordan, whether it was Iverson, you know, he was trying to be Will Smith to a certain degree. He just was always trying to be something. And for all the confidence he had on the basketball court, he's kind of a sad case off of it and that he just, you know, he was, he was a nomadic upbringing, you know, a lot of it in Italy, some of it in Pennsylvania. It just felt really forced to him. And I find that entire period of his life really, really fascinating. And also the way, I mean, this is a long answer, the way he, like Shaquille O'Neal, you'll never find a better teammate. And he was a best teammate to, guys, to the guys who needed him most. The Mark Madsons and the Kareem Rush and the Mike Penberthy. Like he was buying those guys suits and taking them out for dinner and flying in their families for games. He just could not be better. And Kobe couldn't be worse. He really couldn't. He was awful to players he didn't need to be nice to. And... There are tons of examples of him saying, yo, Rook, get me a Gatorade. And the guy wasn't a rookie. He was a free agent in his third year in the NBA. And like Shaq would be like, yo, Kobe, shut up. You know, like he just, 
there's something lacking in him at that period. And in a way, the cool thing is he found it later. He seemed to find it later. But that to me is a very, that's a long answer. So I'll I'll end it there. But it's a pretty interesting period of time and development for a person. Yeah, particularly, I think that that second thing you called out, which was this dichotomy of his public persona, which was that he was this youthful, interesting, you know, good looking, super compelling personality, superstar in the league. And that publicly, he was sort of spreading the word that Shaq was the bad guy in the clubhouse, um, in, the, in the locker room. And it turned out that he kind of ran Shaq out of town to go yes. to the Heat. Um, and, you know, Shaq turned around with a diss track and an NBA championship. And it turned out that Kobe was kind of exposed there once Shaq wasn't there to cover him anymore. Well, for a very brief period of time. And then I would say it's almost like uh, I don't even like Star Wars, but it's almost like that there's like this trilogy. And the first movie is, you know, Shaq and Kobe playing great together. Everything's great, blah, blah, blah. So it's a long movie. The second movie is Shaq is basically forced out of town, traded to Miami, gets his revenge against his former ally. And the third one is, I mean, Kobe strikes back and Kobe wins two more titles. And he's kind of, it's, I mean, it's weird. He's dead. It's so it's weird. It's really weird. But he, he dictated a course he wanted to take and it actually worked out for him in a lot of ways. But I still would rather be Shaquille O'Neal than Kobe Bryant. I'm not talking about alive versus not alive. I mean, right. the journey I would rather have, even though Kobe was a better player with a better NBA career, I would rather have the journey enjoyed by Shaquille O'Neal. He always looked like – the thing that always struck me about the two of them next to each other um, – and again, your book won't come until next week, so I'll, I'll have to see if this is in there. But the thing that always struck me, the two of them next to each other, is that Kobe did it, but he didn't seem to enjoy it. And Shaq enjoyed – every single minute of it. Yeah, well, it's kind of interesting if you think about it. Like, um, there was this narrative that was written about those teams, just unspoken and spoken to a certain degree. Kobe was the mature one, right? Kobe was the mature one because he was, he worked so hard and he did, he worked so hard. And he was a guy in the off season who was taking 8,000 shots and he really was dedicated to the craft. And that's a level of maturity. And why can't Shaq be that mature? I haven't. I never thought about this until I actually started talking about the book. I write about it a lot, but I haven't expressed it this way. But Shaquille O'Neal understood the fleeting nature of it all. You know, like you're not going to be 27 and wealthy and getting paid all this money and famous and women everywhere, and you live in a mansion and you have this giant pool. Like that stuff doesn't last forever. Maybe the material possessions do, but the youthful uh, vigor, those things fade and. I actually think in a way, it sounds weird. Like you're 27 years old. You just won an NBA championship. You spent the year having guys beat the snot out of you. You should be in your pool eating cheeseburgers and smoking cigars and listening to music and going on a rap tour. Like that's what you should be doing because this stuff is fleeting. And the number of times in my career as a sports writer, I've heard athletes say, they're asked, so when are you going to soak this in or when are you going to enjoy this? And they say, I think I'll probably appreciate it when I'm retired and I can look back that's nonsense. I, it's hard to remember anything, you know, like after 10, 15, 20 years. hundred percent. And like, you need to absorb it and embrace it and love it. So I, man, I have no beef with Kobe Bryant, the way he did things. It was the way he was programmed to do it. And it was the way he learned to do it. And there's something really profound to be said for his work ethic. But if I could be Shaq or Kobe during that time period, I'm 1 million percent Shaquille O'Neal. And that's how you get Shaquille O'Neal paying for Dolph Shays' funeral or whatever he did for his teammates versus Kobe, who's asking a guy in his 30s for a, for a Gatorade. 
Um, all right, Jeff, I have taken up a lot of your time and I very much appreciate it. I have one last question for you. Wait, I actually, can I make one more point? You may. I was thinking about, I like, I think you think about this as you get older, right? We're both in our forties now. You're in your forties, right? I am. And <clears throat> I mean, 40 isn't super old, but you start getting up there a little bit. And I do think you start, at least I have, I can't speak for everyone. You realize that the things that are important aren't what you thought were important. And you realize that like seizing them, like your best memories, right? What are your best memories? Your best memories aren't always necessarily your wedding, your bar mitzvah, blah, blah, blah. It's hanging out with a bunch of friends. It's three in the morning. You've been drinking and you're talking about so-and-so or a great barbecue where you're all backyard and you're throwing around a baseball and it's your buddies and it's just great. Or a trip to somewhere with your wife, just a long drive with your wife and it's a beautiful day and you stop and you're in this, like those are the moments. And I just think that the tragedy is too strong of a word. I don't know if Kobe Bryant ever enjoyed the singular moments of being an NBA star. He might've enjoyed it the most when he was fading at the end and he kind of had some final appreciation for it. But I feel like Shaq enjoyed it and embraced it. And that's, I love that. I really love that. I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I, God, look, my wedding was a wonderful night, a wonderful night. The only five minutes of my wedding I remember are the five minutes I took my wife aside and said, look at this, right? This right. is for us. Right. That's a great moment. That's a lot more. And you probably spent whatever amount on the buffet and the stupid cake and the blah, 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 and the blah, blah. But we really, what we remember are singular moments. And I think like, what, what was it like for most of these guys to win the NBA championship? For most of them, it was little tiny moments, slivers, not, oh my God, we won. Here's the confetti and blah, blah, blah. Like it's single moments. And those... You don't want to miss out on those things. There's a lesson. Don't miss out on those there, things. There you go, kids. There's yeah. a lesson for you. From Uncle Jeff. Yeah. Um, last question. Okay. You've interviewed, let's say, a thousand people in your career as a sports writer. A thousand? Let's, I'm throwing a number out. I interviewed, probably interviewed 350 for this book. I, there I, you go. So gotta be, I'm thinking probably in the 20,000 range. There you go. So good. So you've interviewed, I probably should have put an S at, that, at the end of that, but let's say 20,000 people in okay. your life. Who haven't you interviewed that you would really want to interview? Is this dead or alive or just alive? Pick it. Your call. I mean, I would love to sit down with uh, one of the most influential books in my life was the autobiography of Malcolm X. I freaking would love to sit down with Malcolm X. I mean, I just think he's fascinating. And another guy who I, I this is funny because I'm a super liberal, you know, obviously liberal guy. One of my absolute heroes is Gerald Ford. He's an all-time, all-time hero to me. It's not about politics. It's about decency and kindness and empathy and compassion. He's the anti-Trump in every possible way. He's just a good and decent human being thrust into an impossible situation. I would love to write a Gerald Ford book. I don't know if there's a market for him. And I also love how Gerald Ford and Jimmy Carter became best friends even after a really heated election. I just love that. So give me Malcolm X, give me Gerald Ford, and I'm pretty happy. I got to tell you, Jimmy Carter, all-time ex-president, right? Just, yeah, not an all-time president. Not an all-time president, all-time ex-president. Gerald Ford, the reputation that he was saddled with as this just sort of clumsy doofus who stumbled yeah. into the presidency is, I mean, does his entire life a disservice. That's a real shame. So those are both phenomenal answers. The guy was plucked from being a representative to the vice president of a scandalous White House to the president. Like, boom, boom, boom. That is one of the most amazing, amazing transitions ever. And he escaped with his rep. Maybe people didn't like him as a politician. Maybe they didn't like him his policies. Maybe they didn't like that he pardoned Nixon. But to go through all that and escape with your reputation of integrity entirely intact is unbelievable. 
It's a, that's a great, great answer. And it is a great place to end. Jeff Perlman, thank you so much. Three Ring Circus, September 22nd. Support your independent bookstores. You can find it anywhere. Bookshop, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Jeff Perlman. Thank you so much. I think you meant support your sad Jewish writers. (laughs) (laughs) All of the above. Yes. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye. When Yankee Pot Roast put out its book in 2007, we asked Jeff to blurb us, and he did without hesitation. He wrote, This book had me both screaming at the pages and laughing hysterically. A pure joy. My thanks to Jeff Perlman, not just for joining me today, but for bringing a little cred to the insane ramblings of three guys who got to live out their dream for a moment, and for so willingly lying about our book to help us sell them. You can buy Jeff's new book, Three Ring Circus, anywhere books are sold, but it don't cost nothing extra to support your local independent bookstore. To play us out in the hopes that we'll once again be able to see them in concert, here's Pearl Jam and their killer track of their debut album, 10, Black. See you next time. I'm